0: Welcome to the Power Kid Podcast, the premier and longest-running podcast focused on the modern toy and entertainment industry. Power Kid is an award-winning design and development firm, and we are a proud member of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. Adventure Media is the publisher of your favorite industry publications, including the Toy Book, the Toy Insider, and the Pop Insider. I am your host, Phil Albritton, and I bring you great conversations with talented people making amazing products for kids. Toys, books, games, TV, movies. I bring them to you here every episode. Welcome aboard. Hello, 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 Power Kids, and welcome to another Power Kid podcast. Guys, every week, it is my honor and privilege to come on here and to share these conversations with you with people making great things for kids. This is episode two with Nancy Zweers. I introduced her last episode. I'll do so briefly here. Procter & Gamble background. For 15 years, she was the CEO and founder of Phenosophy, where she helped the industry build brands, brainstorm, and plan toy launches. Then she became the executive vice president and CMO of Master. She's now retired and spends her time as a mentor and an advocate of play. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Nancy, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you, Phil. It's so great to be here.
0: So great to have you back. There's so much more to talk about, and I'm so happy to have this opportunity, this this second episode. Let's just jump right in. You did a two-year self-study into child psychology with the intent of learning more about how kids play, how parents buy, and just supporting the toy industry in general. I'm curious, what prompted you to do this? Um, and, and what did you learn from that?
1: Well, you know, I uh, thank you for that question, Phil. Uh, when I was uh, at Mattel for nine years, I was um, heading up the Barbie brand for many of those years and that gave me the opportunity to really unders- or to perceive patterns in the industry. Uh, we were selling over 125 million Dow units per year. That's a lot of data points, and it allows patterns to emerge. And what was really striking is that I saw that there were certain play patterns and themes that were highly, highly successful regardless of time, regardless of geography, and that they seemed to transcend culture. And, and it gave me a curiosity to understand the biological underpinnings of play because that was the only explanation for how you know, core play patterns could be so stable across time and across geography. As I um, started to look into children's psychology, it led me to really um, delve into evolutionary uh, biology, evolutionary psychology. And I started to gain a better understanding of how certain things represent biological drives. And I believe that play is a biologically driven drive. It comes from the inside out. And, you know, maybe in proof and point on that is that you can never force someone to play with something that they don't want to play with. It's always something that you choose for yourself, how you want to have fun. And um, so I often say entertainment is from the outside in, but Mm. play is from the inside out. And that gives us a window into what is really, really important to children.
0: That's really interesting that you separate the two entertainment and toy, because you will often hear the phrase, I'm a part of the entertainment and toy industry, or this is the entertainment and toy industry. But really, you're saying those two things belong on two very different spectrums. Entertainment coming from the outside in, you're being entertained, whereas play comes from from, from inside, you're saying biologically um, which is, if it's biological, then there's some element of play that has to help us to survive, to find exactly. a mate, to, to reproduce, to grow the species. Um, is that right?
1: Yes. I've also often said that uh, play is nature's way of helping us learn how to survive. And the play drive is is, serves a purpose that um, sometimes seems inscrutable to us as we're looking at a little three-year-old playing, but, uh, you know, nature nature programs for success, and that gives me confidence that we should honor how children naturally want to play in, in, as individuals and as children as a whole and not really inflict our adult uh, centric agendas on children and their play nature programs for success we can feel confident that play is wholesome and um, we should support it however it shows up in our children obviously with you know making exceptions for issues of safety and and things like that
0: yeah yeah can you give an example of where we may have injected an adult agenda into a play pattern and, and maybe we shouldn't have.
1: Okay. Well, most uh, volume of girls' toys is generated amongst um, girls three to six. Now, granted, there are boys that also play with girls' toys, but you know, I'm using the term girls' toys because it is highly, highly skewed towards girls. And so, when you think about a three to six year old, they have certain um, um, a certain kind of uh, developmental need at that stage, and it's really about these empowerment fantasies that you know, frankly, are very gender skewed. And so, um, adults a lot of times they want to empower. Um, females in the culture and they say, what better way to start, you know, achieving that goal than, you know, to start early. But here's the thing. Um, the Kids aren't really being driven by culture as much as internal fantasies, empowerment fantasies. And for example, what the empowerment fantasies that girls find most, you know, resonant between the ages of three and six is nurturing empowerment, taking care of something younger, more vulnerable than you are, and beauty empowerment, whether it's feeling beautiful, looking beautiful, uh, creating beauty. Those two forms of empowerment are, are really predominant in the fantasies of little girls three to six. Enter adults who say, okay, we want girls to be gender neutral so that they can be empowered. And so we want girls to play with things that aren't what they naturally would necessarily want to play with. And then you end up with well-intentioned adults trying to lead children away from their natural internally generated motivations and inclinations into areas like STEM, You know, STEM is important, science, technology, engineering, and math. Those careers are considered to be very, you know, great careers, but little girls ages three to six are not preparing for careers. They are living out internal empowerment fantasies that may or may not have anything to do with their ultimate career choices. So, for example, um, an example i like to point to is all of the huge um, uh, visibility the Goldilocks company got with a very impressive video that they aired on uh, the Super Bowl. And it was really about, you know, little girls and, you know, encouraging them to develop STEM uh, uh, skills. But the point of the matter is the actual toys did not really feed into what little girls want to fantasize about. And so they did not necessarily get traction and uh, were not able to sustain that that business in a powerful way beyond the initial wave of well-meaning parents buying it in the hopes that it would help prepare their child to be successful in
0: life. So often what you're saying is that often when we when we miss this point, when we miss the point that play is from the inside out, that can go viral. It can be popular in, in the public eye. But when it comes right down to sales and real play value, it's a miss. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I like to, you know, it sounds a little crass, but I, I, I follow the money in, uh, in the toy industry to understand what works and what doesn't, what kids want to play with and what they don't want to play with. And the reason why I say follow the money is this concept of play value. Play value is the amount of time a child plays with something relative to its expense, its cost. Parents aren't stupid. They don't want to spend good money on toys that their kids won't play with. So they have a naturally built-in bias to buy toys that are going to delight their child. And that's what you see happening is that, by and large, the big brands are the ones that really understand children's internal play drives and internal play fantasies, regardless of what's happening in the adult conversation within the culture.
0: Right, right. Well, and there are some things that children naturally learn from playing that are aligned with what the adults want as well. Look, learn your colors, learn the abstract um, ideas of numbers and quantities, understand balance and how gravity works. These, even at younger ages, you know, sound recognition, Uh, You know, build your motor skills, build your language skills, even positive self-esteem. But again, all of those things come from inside. It's a desire biologically to do those things because those things help you to survive.
1: Exactly. And, you know, um, like there's a lot of times that uh, adults look at uh, girls' toys and consider them superficial, like a lot of uh, Barbie has a lot of detractors because they think Barbie's superficial. It teaches girls to put appearance over other things. Well, interestingly enough, uh, Mattel has just started publicizing a, a full blown study proving, you know what what I perceived, you know, to be the truth when I worked on Barbie, which is that you know, doll play is very powerful as a way to help develop emotional intelligence, social skills, play out uh, stresses and concerns to maintain, you know, positive mental health balance. These aren't things that you have to uh, work at with children. They naturally do it through their play with dolls, playing out these things. And so um, I, I just think that, All this adult perception can sometimes lead us astray. And as long as we really acknowledge that nature programs for success and children play in ways that are inherently healthy for them, I think we'll all be better off.
0: Very good. So let's talk about the consumer. Let's talk about the parent now making those choices for their child. I'm curious, in your career, how has... The shopper. How has the consumer changed? Um, have we done a good job of communicating the value of play to those consumers? How are parents buying product right now?
1: Well, I don't have you know the latest studies um, at my disposal to speak to on this matter, but um, I will say that my personal belief is that play value is king. Parents want to buy things that kids want to play with. Um, I will reference a study that I was a part of and helped implement um, at the beginning of the, the new millennium. It was a really profound study that uh, had two parts. In the first part, we asked parents about what was mo- what were some of the most important considerations for them in buying leisure time products. This included toys, video games, um, computer, you know, educational computer games, books, sporting equipment, and by and large, parents answered in the survey that they wanted to buy things that were good for their child's development. Um, developmental benefits came was the, was the top-ranking uh, rationale. Then the second part of the study, we um, actually did shopper intercepts where we kind of lurked around in the aisles of these various product categories of leisure products for children. And when someone made a selection and then went through the checkout lane to purchase it, Right then and there, we asked them, why did you buy this? And when we tallied up the responses, by far and away, the biggest uh, response was to delight my child. And so um, that really showed how there's these espoused values and then enacted values. The enacted value oftentimes in purchase decisions is I want to get my money's worth. And that's where play value comes into it. And that's where paying attention to children is going to lead you in the right direction. Uh, It's really interesting to note that in the 90s, when I was running the Barbie brand for Mattel, we had a marketing budget of over $50 million. And of that $50 million, we allocated about $300,000 a year for public relations efforts targeted to adults. The balance was uh, spent advertising product fun to children. and, And it worked. The Barbie brand was growing, you know, by double digits year over year over year. And so, you know, I recognize that today's day and age, there's a certain amount of effort that needs to take place to, you know, quiet the critics out there, the vocal minority of critics. But um, but I really believe that if you're marketing toys, you should be spending, um, and and it's for kids ages three and up, you should be spending the bulk of your money against demand creation with the kids versus shopper conversion with the adults.
0: And that is tied directly into how much fun is perceived to come out of that product. So how do do we measure the value of play? Is it measured in the time that a child will spend interacting with that product? Is it measured in some abstract uh, idea of, of fun Um, how many skills they have learned after interacting with the product?
1: Well, the way I define play value, again, is the amount of time a child spends with a toy relative to its cost. So we use this term shut up toy. It's a little impulse purchase, a $2.99 collectible that you buy in the store just to, you know, put a smile on your kid's face, what have you. Uh, You don't expect them to get hours hours of pleasure out of that $299 toy. But you know, you're you're kind of, hey, it's it's for the moment. They're gonna you know enjoy it. And then if it gets set aside, no big deal. Meanwhile, think about some of the big giant play sets that um, brands uh, put out on the market. You know, $49.99 uh, dollar play set. Now that's an investment that's an investment purchase and you expect your child to have hours and hours and hours of play for that big ticket item purchase in a way that you don't expect for something uh, much, uh, much lower price. So play value really combines that combination of time spent playing relative to cost.
0: And if it doesn't happen, then there is a disappointment factor for the parent and potentially for the child. I I talked to Dan Klitzner uh, several episodes ago. Uh He helped to to, uh, invent perplexus. And I said, Dan, that is one of the physical products, one of the best physical products that I've ever seen that will take my kids' attention and time. They will enjoy it for hours. I said, it was the best $20 I spent because that product engaged them for long periods of time. Are there other products like that that come to mind when you think about play value?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say regarding Perplexus, I worked with um, Dan to um, really develop some growth strategies for that product. It started out as a single product. And I believe in the play value of that product like you do. And it's, it's an amazing product. And by the way, I gave it to a teenage boy who was in the hospital and it was the perfect gift because when his friends would come to visit, they didn't really know what to talk about, but they just took turns doing the perplex. So it's a great product, but you know, what I would say is what I've learned about play value. There's one principle that really helps, um, create a virtuous circle around play value. And that is what I call a collectible world of product where the more you buy, the more fun you can have, the more fun you have, the more you want to play with it, the more you want to play with it, the more your parents want to buy it for you. And it just continues as a virtuous circle. Hmm. Barbie uh, has been that that uh, type of model, and particularly in the 90s when um, when I was on the brand, it was very much a part of the thought process. Think about Hot Wheels. Think about Legos. The biggest. Think about Paw Patrol, uh, LOL. The biggest brands in our industry create a collectible world of product where the more you buy, the more fun you can have.
0: Guys, rewind that and listen to that. If you are creating a new product right now, put that into your thought process. Is this product structured in such a way that the more a person buys, the more fun they have? I think that is extremely, extremely valuable, Nancy. Um, I also want to talk about your phenosophy play theory. Now, This is very interesting. This is uh, an organized chart of play patterns by age and gender that you have developed because of your study in child psychology. If you you will take us through this chart, sort of describe it to us, and your thought process in how you broke down each category and cross-referenced it with different ages of growth.
1: Okay. Well, let me just say, first of all, Phil, that the philosophy play theory really combines two things. The first is the what. And I looked at the empirical feedback loop of the marketplace to understand where the biggest successes in the marketplace are. And I I got a a flavor for that in the first 10 years of my career in the toy industry. And I couldn't help but ask myself, why? Why is this the way it is? And so all of the work that I did... um, in the, you know, more academia, um, looking at writings and studies and books, et cetera, really was designed for me to try and piece together the why of the reality that existed in the marketplace, okay? And so, there are a lot of people that study children that don't have the benefit of that empirical feedback loop of the marketplace. So, let me just start by saying a model is an oversimplification of some complex reality in the world. And by definition, it needs to be simplified because that's its purpose, is to help people understand reality in a way that they can really grab a hold of. Okay? So, the philosophy play value, admittedly, is a simplification, but the most successful models both reflect reality and predict reality. And I have put this um, play theory through the ringer over the last 10 years. And I will tell you that um, it does hold up uh, as being a valuable model to understand uh, where the, uh, the juice is in the industry. Okay? So there's there's... Several key uh, components of this play theory. The first and most important is that there are clear age segmentations in play. Zero to two, two and a half, three to seven-ish, and then eight, we'll call it eight plus, all right? Um, And so those age segments are, are very real. Uh, it, it's not like it's, I talk about age as a discrete number, like age seven, but it might be six and a half, or it might be seven and a half, or maybe even eight. You know, not everyone is in lockstep as they go through these various developmental stages. Um, so, that's the first and most important uh, pillar of this play theory. The second is that there are core play patterns and there aren't that many core play patterns. You can dress them up in different ways and put them, you know, deliver them in different ways, but the play patterns are core and there's really only a handful of them. And then the third has to do with, um, the third pillar has to do with gender skews. Not every girl is identical. Not every boy is identical. Therefore, their play isn't exactly identical. But by and large, in the the age segment of, you know, zero to, we'll call it two and a half to three, play patterns, there's three core play patterns that are there and they tend to be, and they are gender neutral. And I'll talk to you about those three core play patterns. They emerge in the very beginning of, of, you know, infancy and toddlerhood. And they actually exist all through your life, but we don't call it play once we're adults. Like travel is a form of exploration and discovery, but we don't call it play, but it is play. Okay. So that early segment, age segment, gender neutral from three to six, uh, is when um, gendered play, uh, real gender skewed play, really wells up, and there are uh, the additional, in addition to exploration, discovery and the two other play patterns I'll speak to, there's these empowerment fantasies, and I'll talk about that. And then from eight um, up, there's a different way that these play patterns um, manifest. So the internal drive stays the same, but they manifest a little bit differently given the developmental needs uh, when you're a tween, you know, trying to figure out who you are in the real world. So what I, um, let me just kind of uh, some you know, summarize it as follows. In the very, you know, in the first, you know, two and a half, three years of life, our developmental need is to really understand the world through our five senses and the law of cause and effect. So when you think about all the infant toys and toddler toys and the Young skewing preschool toys, I'm saying under three, they're all about uh, if I touch this, what does this happen? Or when I look at that mobile, I'm looking at those with my eyes, I'm seeing those pretty colors. Or I look at the flashing light, I see that, or I hear the sounds, I hear that. Um, so it's really about the sensory experience of connecting yourself to the and understanding the real world. And toys that allow children to do, to play out this biological drive that comes from the inside out are really successful in doing that. Um, so that's the first uh, um, age segment. The second age segment, three to six, is really about developing my identity and in particular, you know, a gender identity of who I am in the world as, as, as it relates to, you know, I'm a girl, I'm a boy. And therefore the empowerment fantasies that really well up during this middle age range are indeed gender skewed. Um, So for example, little kids don't understand um, nuances and distinctions. They say, okay, I'm a girl. I want the quintessential girlness because I don't understand a concept called tomboy yet. I just know girl is girl, boy is boy and that's why you see fantasies that are really predominant across time and geography about girls wanting to play out that quintessential femininity of the princess and and boys often want to play out that quintessential masculinity of the superhero so it's all about empowerment but it's empowerment that has a like a, a, a sheen of gender, uh, you know, over it. And, um, a lot of people have problems with this. They see their little girl who only wants to, uh, wear a skirt, a dress and, and wants to wear pink and wants to, you know, play princess. And they think, oh my gosh, my, my little girl is not, you know, empowered. But the thing is, she's going to grow out of that. This age three to six is when our, um, our preferences are the most skewed. And from then on forward, we get a little bit more even keel in how we uh, relate to our own sense of possibilities, because we know that there's lots of different kinds of girls and women. There's lots of different kinds of boys and, and men. So, um, you know, there, no need to be worried if you're, if you're saying, oh, my God, my, my little boy only wants to fight. You know, he's to be a problem. No, it's really um, a healthy way to kind of own who you are at one of the most fundamental traits that we have, which um, is our you know, identity as a boy or a male or a female.
0: And it starts by looking at the child and and understanding how the child is developing and why they are doing those things and really trying to see it from the child's perspective. Uh, Guys, let this be the beginning of your own research and insight seeking. If you're listening to this, Nancy has just shared a fantastic uh, open door for you to begin this research and understand play more in depth. Uh, Nancy, Stuart Brown, founder of the Institute of Play, uh, has written a great book, Play, and he concurs play is biologically driven, uh, that children are playing from the inside out. He, though, is not a tremendous fan of the toy industry at large. He thinks that maybe we've missed the mark in in some areas. And and I want to pose the question to you, how would the toy industry look differently if we were to really lean into these ideas that play is from the inside out
1: well you know one thing i would say is that one of the hallmarks of play and what differentiates it from work is its purposelessness meaning you know play has no purpose play is the purpose there's no there's no end game in mind and so It's the journey, not the destination, right? And so, if it's the journey that delivers the value, you want that journey to be as long as possible, so it can deliver as much value as possible. And sometimes, as an industry, we um, we're we're designing price points. You know, those price points are real. They represent you know key considerations for. You know, purchase decisions, etc. Sometimes we don't deliver the kind of open-ended play patterns that, or you know, play experiences that really um, provide a very rich and um, deep journey. I I was struck uh, by—I had this epiphany. um, This was in the '90s. Again, I was uh, running the Barbie brand, and I realized, oh my gosh almost all of our money was in research and consumer insights was going to measure our success in creating desire for a toy. And very, very little of that consumer insights budget was used to understand how well we delivered play value. So this idea that the industry focuses on creating desire So they sell a lot of toys versus delivering play value. And I think that sometimes leads us astray, especially given the constraints that certain price points put on us. Um, And so one of the things about creating desire is to have a hot feature, you know, a really cool feature that's like, wow. And, you know, (laughs) once you've experienced that, maybe once, twice, twice, maybe three times, it kind of loses its luster and what's left is the child's imagination. And is there enough in the toy to continue to field or uh, to fuel the child's imagination after the novelty of the feature set wears off. That's where I think the toy industry needs to really do some introspection and say, how can we as an industry get more grounded in delivering rich, deep play value, play opportunities versus just get kids to want a cool feature?
0: Focus on the play value. And don't worry, sales will follow great play value.
1: Absolutely. I mean, look at Lego. Lego. Uh, it's been such a powerhouse brand for its existence. Uh, it doesn't, you know. There was a period in the mid 2000s where Lego said, "Oh my gosh, we've got to, you know, start creating more featury kinds of things," and it didn't take them anywhere. And then when they went back to basics, which this idea of, you know, like um, both exploration and discovery, and importantly, you know, challenge and mastery. Uh, That's, you know, the construction, you know, category really, you know, really is imbued with a sense of challenge and mastery. Um, When they went back to their basics of what the play value of the construction toy is, they started really growing quite dramatically. So um, I think that's really important. There's also a lot of uh, conversation about, you know, entertainment based toys, you know, toys that involve an entertainment license. And, you know, some people think that the storylines kind of, you know, maybe, you know, sir, uh, kind of constrain the child's imagination. I'm not so sure about that. And I remember hearing uh, someone from Fisher Price years ago who was very involved in the play labs at Fisher Price say that they did a study where... Um, Uh, they found that entertainment actually spurred, you know, imagination and kids aren't necessarily constrained by just playing out stories that are part of the entertainment. They, it becomes a starting point. It helps. It's kind of like, instead of writing, you know, from a blank sheet of paper, you get to edit and changes. And that's so much easier than dealing with a blank sheet of paper. So, um, you know, I remember watching play groups, uh, when I was on Barbie where ja- princess Jasmine was Barbie's mother and, you know, e- you know, and, and Ariel was the, you know, the baby. Well, that just goes to show you that what the girls want to play out, they're going to play out regardless of what the story actually says about the character.
0: Yeah. Well, last episode, you talked about um, entertainment properties and that balance being accessible, but also aspirational. And so it's accessible so the child can grab onto it here. Mm Yeah. Right. Chase, chase the puppy. He's accessible. He's a little puppy. He's cute, but he's aspirational because he's a hero. He's he's a police dog. And so we, we can grab onto it here. The child can grab onto it down here and it launches them into this aspirational play where, okay, the, the episode is off now. What happens to Chase next? You know, I love the old Kenner Superpowers commercial, You Decide. That's how those commercials always end. It set, it set up a plot. What happens? You decide. Yep. And I think that is fantastic. How empowering so
1: is that, right? I mean, that's <laughs> exactly. the thing about these fantasy empowerment, or these empowerment fantasies is they really are about making children feel more powerful than they than they are in their real life. In the real life, mom and dad tell you what to do, when to do it, you know, what to eat, uh, blah blah blah, you know, on and on. And so, in their play, they get to be the boss; they get to <laughs> decide, and they get to make it up as they go along. And what could be more empowering than that?
0: Fantastic. Well, Nancy, you have come on here today. You have empowered us. You've challenged us. So many thought provoking ideas. Guys, I do. I I, I think you'll want, to, you'll want to rewind, re-listen to the show. So much here to unpack. Nancy, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. And I look forward to the next time.
1: All right, Phil. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're great, Nancy. We'll talk to you soon. OK, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the power kid podcast. If you like what you hear subscribe so that you never miss an episode and leave a good review on iTunes. This helps us find more great listeners just like you. Remember also to check out the other shows that are a part of the adventure media and events podcast network family. This show is brought to you by the power kid design and development team. We are a full-service design and development studio serving the toy and game industry for over 20 years. Our partners, large and small, rely on us for invention, concept development, packaging, branding, prototyping, and much more. You can find me on my LinkedIn page. Check out the website at PowerKidDesign.com or email me directly, Phil at PowerKidDesign.com. I am always happy to connect and help you develop your next great product. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Now go out and make something great. And remember, you are creative because you were created. God bless, and I'll see you next episode.